0: There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash, they are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly, nice, so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man. Where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry, unlimited use of exclusive app lane, unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them, unlimited guest service. And most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and body wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. All right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. You don't got time for that All right? Let's go! Crank it! Crank it, Woo!
1: Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen.
2: You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320
0: KLWN. Wow, the word back is very much in play today. Back has not been a word used to describe Texas, although there have been brief moments of it. The Sugar Bowl, the game against Notre Dame. I forget who was on the call. Texas is back, folks, when they beat Notre Dame. But back is a word to describe Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of Green Bay. Adam Schefter, this is, I mean, just minutes before coming on the show here. The Packers are offering concessions and are close to an agreement that would bring Aaron Rodgers back to Green Bay for at least this season. Deal is not done, but it is close. The 2023 year in Aaron Rodgers' contract, the last one in his current deal, would be voided with no tags allowed in the future, according to Schefter. So that means he has this year under contract, next year under contract, and then that would be it. Which basically the idea here would be, okay, we're going to bring him back for this year. He'll play with the team. That gives us also this whole season to while he's playing and making us competitive we have this whole season to figure it out to further groom along Jordan Love. He knows his target date is next year, and then next year when Aaron Rodgers is is in his final year of his contract, they can trade him away next offseason when they're further prepared for this. That is interesting. But while Rodgers appears to be back, Texas football not fully back. The thing that is most not back is Oklahoma and Texas returning to the Big 12. Despite the best efforts To meet with Oklahoma and Texas. And when I say best. I don't know if I actually mean best. There were quote. Cordial meetings. Okay. And their desperation play of. They offered more shares of revenue. To Texas and Oklahoma over the weekend. Despite all that. What's done is done. Oklahoma and Texas are headed. Out of the Big 12. Seemingly for the SEC. The only thing that could stop that. Would be the vote. Which. Seems pretty certain at this point. Maybe A&M votes against them, but outside of that, doesn't seem like anybody is going to pick up on that vote. Official letter sent to the Big 12 with intention to leave the conference for the SEC. This was the response from the Big 12 and Bob Bolsby. Very laughable, per usual. Although our eight members are disappointed with the decisions of these two institutions, we recognize that intercollegiate athletics is experiencing rapid change and will most likely look different in 2025 than it does currently. The Big 12 Conference will continue to support our member institutions' efforts to graduate student-athletes and compete for Big 12 and NCAA championships. Like many others, we'll use the next four years to fully assess what the landscape will look like in 2025 and beyond. The remaining institutions will work together in a collaborative manner to thoughtfully and strategically position the Big 12 Conference for continued success both athletically and academically long into the future. That last part was the most laughable. Like many others, we're going to use the next four years to fully assess the landscape will look like in 2025 and beyond. Dude, the Big 12 is dying. Maybe now isn't the time to think about your future at your conference in 2025. Maybe this is time to act now. And we know over the course of the Big 12, it has been so, so bad at being proactive. They've been reactive to everything. And even when I say they've been reactive to everything, they're not even reacting that much. They just react to whatever happens, but it's not like a big reaction either. And this is the same crap. Well, this is problematic, but we're going to take the next four years to figure it out. Unbelievable. Also, the part the remaining institutions will work together in a collaborative manner. No, they won't. It's abandoned ship. The big 12 ship is sinking. If Oklahoma State has a chance to go to the PAC12, they ain't reaching back and going, "Hey, Texas Tech, you want to climb on with us? Hey, Kansas! We don't want you guys to be stuck here. We're getting out of here. You want to to hitch a ride? That ain't happening. It's the Wild West at this point. Everybody is on their own. Now, I guess there's still the scenario of the Big 12 because I guess they could stay together and they'd be the Big 8 again, which was cool and all, but now the Big 8 doesn't have, like, your Nebraska, who in the 90s was a college football power. You don't have that, that team anymore. Dennis Dodd wrote a piece today that said, Given the loss of Texas and Oklahoma, that could be worth up to 75% of the Big 12's media rights, which schools are getting paid about $37 million. That would equate to schools now by the conference only getting paid about $9 million without Texas and Oklahoma in the conference. That's basically, I mean, it's a few extra million more than the American Athletic Conference is making. So sure, you stay at eight, you're dying. You want to add a couple AAC teams, maybe you make... 11, 12, $15 million per school, but it's still a gigantic decrease of what you're doing. The Big 12 Conference is dying, but it doesn't seem like they're acting that way. And obviously, this isn't a surprise with Texas and Oklahoma officially making it formal now. If you've been paying attention to this at all, it was leading to this point. It's just now it's a finality. A decade ago, when the Big 12 schools, a handful of them were talking about going to the Pac-12, or I think at the time, Pac-10, there was never the finality. There was the rumors that it was going to happen. There was the talk that it could possibly happen, but it never did happen. And now we actually have that this time with Texas and Oklahoma. There will be no desperation play from the big 12. There will be no opportunity to sway them away. And honestly, it's not a good thing that the big 12 is dissolving, obviously, as you'd imagine, or that it's breaking up or that it is a sinking ship. But it is a good thing that Texas and Oklahoma didn't hold the conference hostage. They could have taken that deal for more revenue shares and hurt some of the other schools and also still been holding the conference hostage that at that point you'd still know the Big 12 was on shaky grounds. You'd still know Texas and Oklahoma, whenever they want, could just continue to squeeze the life out of the league. It just kind of works best for everyone that they're just sticking with it and saying, hey, we're moving on. Because at this point, once everything's leaked out, you can't really save this thing. It's it's at a point that the boat is already, if we're to continue with the ship is sinking, the Titanic is already at a 90 degree angle. It's already halfway in the water. You ain't getting it out at this point. There's already a giant hole in the ship. As far as for Oklahoma and Texas, this is just step one for that process of moving to the SEC. Next, they have to get votes from the SEC, which I'm assuming shouldn't be an issue. We've mentioned Texas A&M stuff. Texas A&M might continue to get in with some politicians to try to block this somehow. But I don't think this is going to end up being a problem. I I also don't think that they would go this far as to send in the letter to the Big 12 unless they knew they had this in the bag. It's kind of like how... I've always heard like attorneys, you're supposed to only ask questions on the stand that you know the answer to beforehand and that it's going to be favorable to you. You don't go up there and ask a question. You have no idea what the person on the stand is going to say because that could lead to some ripple effect that you didn't even think in the case. That's like Oklahoma and Texas here. You wouldn't send in this letter and make it official with the Big 12 unless you knew you had this in the bag, and I'm sure they do. The question now beyond what happens to the Big 12, what does Kansas do, what do the other schools do, is when will this all happen? And I think part of that plays into each other. The timeline of this is going to be super interesting. A lot of it it kind of involves money and paperwork and who knows, maybe there's a lawsuit in some way or another. The letter from Oklahoma and Texas states not continuing past the final season of the media rights agreement in 2024 to 25. So that's kind of the max time you could have on the timeline here. That's a long time. That's what we're 21, 22 now, 22, 23 next year, 23, 24 year after that, 24, 25. That's four more seasons, including this year. I cannot imagine they're going to wait that long. I can't imagine they're going to sit in the Big 12 for four more seasons and deal with all the other schools hating them in, maybe hate's too strong of a word, but being petty with them or making jibes at them or kind of taking subtle jabs here or there, whether it is the conference calls that they have with the different athletic directors and commissioners, whether it is the fans of other schools chanting SEC at them during games. They're not going to want to stay in that thing for four years. That is going to be so awkward. Like, imagine if you were breaking up with your girlfriend and you were like, yeah, I I don't think we should be together anymore, Sally, but (laughs) why did I pick the name Sally? That I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's stay together for another like month though. Cause I mean like my apartment lease isn't up or is up at the end of the month, and then I'll move out of somewhere, but, like, I know this isn't working. Let's just deal with it for another month, okay? No, you don't do that. And I can't imagine either the SEC is just going to wait for the super conferences for that long. They're not going to make this big splash of a move to go in four years. Imagine, too, like, there won't be trade deadlines right now. Imagine if a team's like, hey, we're trading for Max Scherzer, but we're not going to play him till 2023. You'd be like, what? I have a hard time imagining that this is going to play out those full four seasons. And that's where it gets interesting because I wonder how soon is too soon. Surely this year is obviously untenable. They're going to play in the Big 12 this year. But I do wonder, like, is 2022, would that be too early? The biggest part is the legal actions that could be made. Here's what the statement reads in the letter. The universities intend to honor their existing grant of rights agreements. That would make it sound kind of like they're going to play it out. But here is the very first sentence after they talk about intending to honor the existing grants of rights agreement. And in my opinion, is the biggest statement in the letter. However, both universities will continue to monitor the rapidly evolving collegiate athletics landscape as they continue how best to position their athletics programs For the future. It's a lot of lip service and saying we plan on honoring the full agreement. To basically come down to this. Well, we're going to save face and say we're in it for the rest of the media rights deal. But we are clearly looking to get out as soon as possible. And here's a key line in Pete Thamel wrote about this on Yahoo Sports. You can go check out the piece said that, first of all, announcing a contract break, not smart, right? Wouldn't be smart to go out in public and say, hey, we're going to breach our contract so you can sue us if you want. We're just letting you know. The second part, officials from Oklahoma and Texas have buyouts that total nearly $150 million to leave the league. And if they want to avoid paying all that, the school's best chance is to sit back. And this is exactly from the Pete Thamel piece. Sit back, sing kumbaya, and wait to see if the Big 12 ends up dissolving. Because if the Big 12 ends up dissolving, then you're good. You save all the money. So Texas and Oklahoma are probably actually rooting for Kansas and Iowa State to go to the Big 10, for Kansas State and Texas Tech and Baylor to go to the Pac-12, for West Virginia to go to the ACC. They're rooting for that because if the Big 12 dissolves they don't have to pay that uh, basically $75 million each in exit fees. Outside of that? And maybe they don't have to worry about outside of that. Maybe they are fine just playing the long game and hoping that it'll end by them. because again these schools need to be proactive so it might be the best bet but otherwise they'd have to pay some buyouts and who knows maybe even the The schools themselves or the SEC, maybe this is part of the agreement that they said, hey, we actually are willing to do that because this is going to make us so much money in the long run and it might make us a bunch of upfront money. I don't know if they can renegotiate the fees. I don't know what leverage they would have there. ESPN would just say, nope, sorry, we already agreed to the deal. But maybe they already are fine paying a buyout. And I think this all just reiterates the point. It's been the common thing I'll say, and I'm, Sure, I'll say it many times again. KU needs to move quickly. They need to be proactive about realignment. Certainly the Big 12 ain't going to do it. And how about this quote from Jamie Pollard? This was unearthed by Dennis Dodd of CBS Sports. This was from Jamie Pollard, the Iowa State AD, from 2016, five years ago. The Big 12 exists because we have Texas and Oklahoma in the room. If we take Texas and Oklahoma out of the room, we're the Mountain West Conference. Time to leave the sinking ship and Texas and Oklahoma. Now that they have officially sent their letter to the Big 12, the ship, it's a sinking. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. About 20 till the top of the hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Five straight for the Kansas City Royals. Are they back? Mentioned Aaron Rodgers, back. Texas, Oklahoma, not back to the Big 12. David Lesky, inside the crown, joins us now on the show, as he does every Monday here. Talk Royals baseball. This is trade deadline week. David, are the Royals back?
1: Well, look, if they keep up their pace over the last week, they will win 107 games. (laughs) 107 games will get them in the playoffs. So, look, I... I, uh... I'm not one to argue with history, and the reality is that they are 5-0 and in their last five games, which pretty much, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard for me not to see them winning their final 65. Right. So, yeah, I think it's postseason.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't see how you could see it any other way, to be completely honest. Um, Daniel Lynch came up, pitched masterfully on Sunday, eight innings of work, no runs allowed, low hit and walk numbers as well. What was the biggest difference for Lynch in what we saw yesterday versus the first go around in the big leagues?
1: Uh, two things: one, command, command more than anything. I mean, he, you know, his first go around in the big leagues, basically, it was the pitches he threw were either so far out of the zone that you could not get a chase, or down the middle, <laughs> and so you know, it, 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 big league hitters are going to hit that no matter how good your stuff is. Because His stuff looked, I thought, fine when he was first up. It just he was not throwing the ball where he needed to throw it. And so the command was the biggest thing for me yesterday. He, he was hitting his spots um, and, and he wasn't always hitting his spots, but he did it enough that he could miss when he, when he did. Um, but I, you know, I also thought he was, this is, this is such a hard thing to quantify, but he just seemed more in, not just his, not he didn't just have command. He seemed in command. And, and, and I mean that like, You'd see him. This is such a an old school way of thinking that I almost I almost hate saying it out loud because I, I don't I don't typically subscribe to the old school thinking. But you'd see him get the ball and he would be on the rubber, just waiting for the hitter to be ready. And, and I think I think that's something that you know, he, just getting the ball and throwing it at, that helps. It helps everybody. Helps everybody involved. Um, but I mean, he he just he just looked like. A big league pitcher yesterday, and he really did. he looked like a minor leaguer making spot starts when he was up in May and and yesterday. And I mean, the results helped this obviously, but yesterday he looked like he belonged, and it was. I think it was the best start of the season for the Royals. I don't. I don't think you can argue any other start was better, considering he went eight shutout and didn't walk a batter. Um, it's not like there was another start where they had seven and a third shutout. They had. A, couple one-run, Brad Keller gave up one over seven and two-thirds right before the break, but he walked four. You know, I mean, there's a few of those starts, but it was it was the best start of the season for the Royals from a guy who had a 15.88 ERA or whatever it was when the game started. So that, it was very impressive.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too. I mean, if you would have told me he would have dominated, I would have thought way more than the strikeout total that he put up there. Yeah. I, I think also, too, I, I know there were a lot of talk about them thinking maybe he was tipping pitches, when he was up before, does this make you maybe consider that that was even more of a possibility now? Yeah, it's possible.
1: Um, and, you know, he may have been tipping pitches. He may not have been. I don't know. I don't know that it actually caused the issues that he was having because, like I said, he, he was i mean—he's putting the ball on a tee or he was not putting it anywhere near the zone. So it, it, I don't think a hitter had to know what was coming to To be able to, to hit a pitch down the middle, basically. But, I mean, there was, they, they did mention this in the broadcast, the, the way he was holding his glove was a little bit different. Um, you know, just, just, just taking some steps to, even if it wasn't that, to make sure it won't be that again. And um, I, I thought he did a, obviously did a great job. Um, it, was, it was funny, me sitting on my couch after five innings, I'm going, you know, I might take him out. Just to keep him confident, and then after the sixth, I go, "Wow, he got out of that jam." I, I definitely take him out and just keep that confidence up. And then after the seventh, I'm like, "Yeah, get him out of there." And then after the eighth, and he, he came out. I'm like, "Why is he out for the ninth?" I want to see a complete game, but uh, I, I totally get it. But yeah, it was uh, it was a masterful
0: performance. All right, overreaction to Lynch and Chris Bubich last two appearances. I, I guess last World three series. in total. Uh, <laughs> well, not just that. I mean, I, th- I think we've already established the hundred win season is coming. Right. Right. Uh, which one of those two is going to be the opening day starter in twenty twenty two?
1: Both of them. They're going. To, they're both okay. going to stand on the mound together. Um, no, I. You know, it, it 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 is really good to see those two ha- have some good A's. And Bubic has had success at the big league level. He's he, he finished his season strong last year. He started his season strong this year. Once he came back from, um, he actually never pitched in AAA. It was just the alternate site. But once he came back from that, um, so he's had his success. But it was it was nice to see him succeed, then fail, and then find some success again over his last two outings. Um, you know, I, I think a lot, I go back to, I think it was 2009 when Mike Velas came up, and he, you know, came out of nowhere and he was hitting like crazy, and then pitchers adjusted. And you thought, all right, well, that's the end of Mike Velas," And then he adjusted back. And then pitchers adjusted again, and then he adjusted back. And one of the, one of the best things you can see from a young pitcher, from a young player in general, is how they bounce back from their failure. Um, Obviously, you prefer they never have the failure, but that's not reality. And so um, to see both of those guys get knocked around and then find ways to get out from the big leagues, it's just really, really encouraging for their future because it's not, you know, quote William Merrifield, it's not going to be all peaches and roses or whatever he says. (laughs) Um, There are going to be times that you struggle and you've got to figure out a way out of it. And I think being able to find that success you know I, I think back to like like the start lynch made in detroit where he didn't didn't last very long um his last big league start before yesterday i i feel like having had that success he is much more likely to be able to make an adjustment during that game if it happens again that keeps him in there and and the you know the, the thing that great pitchers do yeah the game yesterday awesome what separates a great pitcher is when they don't have it, they still go six innings and give up three runs. Bad pitchers, anybody can have a great day. Any major league pitcher is good. And Jorge Lopez took a perfect game in the ninth three years ago. So any pitcher can have a great day, but the good ones know how to adjust and, and do it without their best. And, and I think that by be, by failing and coming back, I think that's a really good sign for any young player moving forward. And, We've seen it we saw it Friday and Sunday from Bubich and Lynch and that was really nice to see.
0: Okay, so Chris Bubich, Daniel Lynch, both good now. Is Nicky Lopez good? I, I guess I you
1: know um he I I have kind of a hot take about Nicky Lopez and it's that he's I think what he I think he tried to make his adjustments out of order. You know, he went he after the 2019 season he went and he, he said I'm going to I'm going to gain some muscle, I'm going to drive the ball more. He, he he wasn't good in 2019. I mean, he, he the issue wasn't him driving the ball. The issue is that he wasn't he didn't know how to handle big league pitching. And so I think I think what he should have done is make the adjustments he made after or before this season after last season first. And now that he's done that, see now I'm all on board. I said go go out yeah put some muscle on add 10 home runs give yourself a chance to hit eight to ten balls out of the park now, now that you've got that that baseline of big league success, I think that actually makes more sense because yeah, I mean I think he's kind of figured out you know a lot of how to handle big league pitching, how to how to work your way on base when you're you know, maybe not as not as strong, maybe not as good as some other guys even I would go as far to say. Um it's just been really impressive to watch his progression this season and it not not just offensively because he he made a couple of plays at shortstop. I think back when Mondesi came back in, I guess it was late May um, when he when he the the night that he actually hurt his hamstring. He made a play coming in on the play he hurt his hamstring. Apparently, he made that play coming in, and I thought Nicky Lopez can't make that play. Lopez is solid. He's a solid defender um, at shortstop. He's great at second. He's solid at shortstop. And I go Lopez can't make that play. I, I don't, I'm not convinced Lopez can't make that play anymore. He showed me so much defensively as well that, yeah, I think he turned himself into a really solid big league player. And like I said, now I think it would probably be the time he wants to go into the offseason and say, okay, now that I've got this base, I'm going to add some strength. I, I think that makes a lot more sense in the order he did it.
0: We're talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown. The trade deadline is this Friday. Uh, who do you think is more likely to get traded, Whit Merrifield or Jorge Soler? Oh boy! Uh, honestly, I think Jorge Soler because, and it's not that he's going to bring back
1: more. It's not that the Royals are going to get a top two prospect for for Jorge Soler because they're not. Um, but I think I think they're asking for so much for Whit Merrifield that he, he could go. Look, it's if the Mariners get totally desperate and say, "All right, fine, we'll do this," whatever whatever this is, I, I think it's certainly possible that he could go. Um, it's just it's kind of hard to see it happening you know, when you look at the Adam Fraser trade from yesterday, yes, whatever it was, um, he brought back the Padres, the highest rated, pro, the highest rating I saw for, um, I'm blanking on the the top prospects name or, or Mark, Cano or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. The highest ranking I saw was five. And that's an MLB pipeline. Most places had him eight to 11 in the Padres system. Fraser and Merrifield are pretty comparable. Merrifield's a better runner. He's got more team control, but, Frazier's probably been the better bat over the last two seasons. Um, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're pretty comparable players. And, and so the Royals likely aren't going to get a whole lot more than that. And I don't think that's enough for them, which is why I think some team will say, hey, we've seen him hit four homers in five games, you know, whatever it'll be on Thursday or Friday at that point. We think, we think it's worth our number 33 prospect, which I think the Royals would do in a heartbeat. I don't care who it is to see if he'll hit 15 homers in two months for us. And so I think he's more likely to go just because of the willingness of the Royals to deal him for whatever. Um, but again, I look, if a team gets desperate, Merrifield could easily go Scott Barlow could go. Mike minor could go there. There's a lot of options here. And it, um, <laughs> I feel like this is setting up for us to be really annoyed and disappointed on Friday when nothing happens,
0: <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, 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 there are definitely a lot of possibilities. Well, that was – I mean, you mentioned Scott Barlow, so that was going to be my next question. Who do you think is more likely to get traded from the pitching staff, Danny Duffy or Scott Barlow?
1: Oh, You know, I, I've heard some – I won't say rumblings because they're not even that loud. But Barlow has been popular. He's been a popular name. Um, that said, Danny Duffy may not pitch until September. We don't know. That, that's the problem with Duffy. We don't know when he's going to be able to get back on a big league mound during a game. And it sounds like the Dodgers, Giants, and Padres don't care. As long as he's able to come back this season, they are still interested. Now it knocks down the return and all that, but if Duffy's if he's already on the injured list until September 1st and he's only got 30 games in the season left, does, I think that makes the Royals more likely to move him than if they would have had him for 60 games, 65 games, sixty, you know, whatever it is. Um, so I think he's more likely to get moved, but I, it's, I mean, it's dangerously close to 50, 50 with those two. Um, like I said, I've heard, I've heard some Barlow talk. Um, and if you really want to get crazy, the Mariners could use a reliever too. If you want to go Witt and Barlow and, and then, then they might be able to get what they want. Um, just don't know if it's the best idea to package two of your better trade chips for, in one package. I, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is, but um, yeah, I'd say Duffy is like slightly like more likely, but it, it, it's awfully close with those
0: two. We're talking with David Lesky a few more minutes here of Inside the Crown. Uh, do you think there is any case to be made at all, and maybe this would be on the idea of holding on to a guy like Whit Merrifield, that the Royals, while trying to shop guys who maybe they're free agents after the year, should actually be buyers if it's for a player with multiple years left on their contract. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I think we know what the holes are moving forward. Um, well, we don't We don't necessarily know what all the holes are, but we know where there's definitely all. Center field, as an example, is definitely a hole. Um, with young pitching, I think you can safely say that if a top-of-the-rotation starter was available for 23, 24, and 25, or even 23 and 24, um, obviously 22 also, the Royals probably would jump on that because it, it, you know they, they have a lot of pitching prospects, but it would be nice to have one guy who you know is good. And so the, the name I've floated before, Herman Marquez. The Rockies say they're not trading him. They may not be. I don't know, but he's a guy who's under team control through twenty four, I believe. You know, if they can go get him. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I the issue is you can't be trading for somebody who is only under team control through next season. So that doesn't make any sense to me that that to me seems like a wasted move. Um, so, yeah, if they can go get somebody and, you know, who, who fits in their in center field for a couple of years after next season or in the rotation or a, a top notch bullpen arm, um, I don't even know if there's one out there, honestly, <laughs> if, they, if there was a. Uh, an actual contender this year would probably give up way more than the Royals would be willing to. But I, th- there are spots that you can look at and say, okay, we know they're going to need this and let's let's go get it right now because they do have some prospect capital removed. They've got all these starting pitchers. I mean, if you want to say, all right, you can have Jackson Coar," and they've got a million catchers and Salvi under control for 22 more years. So, you know, you on Jackson and MJ Melendez, that is a massive prospect haul. that probably doesn't really ding the Royals terribly in their future, right? I mean, if you believe in Singer, Bubich, Lynch, Lacey, Alec Marsh, Jonathan Bolin coming back from Tommy John, all, all these guys, whoever they are, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, if you believe in all of them, you can give up one of your pitchers. And if you've got Salvi under team control and you believe in Sebastian Rivero, and you just got Luca Tresh signed from your draft, and you know all these catchers in the system. You can you can theoretically give up MJ Melendez as well and get something back really good. So I wouldn't be upset if they do that, it, as long as as long as the player they target is under team control for at least two seasons beyond next year. Um, otherwise, I think it's a waste of a move. But yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. I think it makes a lot of sense if if they target the right guys.
0: What jersey number is Eric Hosmer going to wear now that <laughs> Holland is donning thirty-five?
1: You know, I, it, it, I'm about to hang up. Don't put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 it's funny because it's it, it's so true. You know, I I thought all along. Okay, the Royals are going to trade for Hosmer at some point when they when he signed the deal with the Padres. This is three years ago for whatever it was four years ago. I thought this, this is a they're going to they're going to trade for him at some point because the Padres are going to say we don't need him and. The Royals are, don't have a first baseman coming through. I, I'm just counting our lucky star, all of our lucky stars that Nick Prado has emerged this year. Because if he hadn't, uh, Hosmer might already be a Royal. I mean, honestly, he might already be in Kansas City. Um, and, it, and it would kind of make some sense, actually, if they didn't have anybody to, to, to come up and play first base. But thankfully they do. I don't think it'll happen, um, but I'm guessing that Holland will give up his 35 when it does. So, yeah, there's
0: your answer. <laughs> <laughs> he is David Lesky. You can check out all his work. Subscribe to his Substack, Inside the Crown. It's awesome getting to read it every day. Just write to your email. Getting the weekend recaps are, are worth it and everything that David provides. David, thank you so much for the time.
1: Definitely. Thanks, Eric.
0: All right, that's David Lesky, Inside the Crown, here on Rock Truck Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320, KLWN, depending on it. Four o'clock hour here on Rock Shock Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Coming up a little later this hour, Michael Swain, who runs the Iowa State Cyclones account for 24 7 sports on their website. Similar, we always talk to Scott Chase in a fog.net. It's that for Iowa State. He's going to join us to talk Iowa State. We kind of took a bit of a detour last week due to me being out for surgery related reasons. And we're unable to continue on our KU football opponent season previews. But we still have the three non-cons in the book. We have Baylor in the book for KU's first Big 12 opponent. Iowa State is their second Big 12 opponent and fifth game overall. So coming up here in a little bit, we'll talk with Michael Swain previewing Iowa State and what to expect in that possible game. But first... We do a segment every Monday now called Case of the Mondays, where we go over some of the things that may have happened over the weekend that you may not have been in tune about.
1: When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to
2: you,
0: sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. First up, NHL draft occurred. I don't really have any takes about the draft itself, about players, and certainly you're probably not listening to the show expecting me to break down who the San Jose Sharks took at pick seven. I just bring this up because I love the format of how the NHL draft works, and I think it should be instituted in at least the NBA. It would probably be pretty perfect, honestly, for the NBA. NFL, MLB, like the, the way they do theirs probably works best for the way those leagues are run. But tell me this would not work for the NBA. All right, so here's the first part. To be eligible for the NHL draft, it is any North American player who turns 18 by a specific date is eligible for the draft. Any non-North American player, and when I say specific date, it's basically set on like, oh, it'll be by September, blah, blah, blah this year. So any player who turns that by the specific date, um, any non-North American player can be drafted at any age if they are at least 18 by then. And then if a player is 18, they must declare themselves eligible. But if a player turns 19 by that date, they are automatically eligible for selection in the draft. So, got it? If you're 18 years old, you declare yourself eligible, you're in the draft. If not, you got to wait till you're 19. Once you're 19, you're automatically in the draft. All right, that's part one. Part two is the signability part. If a player is not drafted by the age of 20, that player becomes an unrestricted free agent. A player not signed by a drafted team within two years can re-enter the draft, assuming they are still eligible and they are not eligible, and if they are not eligible, will become unrestricted and a free agent. A team has the rights of an NCAA player until 30 days after the player leaves the college. If a player is drafted a second time, they cannot re-enter the draft. If a player has entered the draft twice and has not been selected, they then become free agents regardless of age. A non-North American player cannot be signed unless they are drafted first. So, international players have to be drafted first, but as far as the American players just kind of summarizing this, you can basically enter the draft twice. If you enter the draft when you're 18, 19 years old, you get drafted, you don't like where you were picked in the draft, you think you should be a higher draft pick, or you don't like the team that you got drafted by. Guess what? You can re-enter the draft another year, so you just don't sign with that team. You re-enter the draft the next season. Um, also, you could get drafted after your freshman year, after you're 18 years old. I could get drafted, say, you know, by the uh, New York Rangers in the first round after I was 18 years old, after my freshman season, but go, okay, that's awesome, I really want to go play pro, and I love the fact that now I'm secured into being a first-round pick, but I, I want to continue my college career. I want to get my degree or... I just love being at this school, whatever it is. You still get to remain that. So now you can go back to school and be in school for two years, three years, four years, however long you want to be in school. And once you leave school, you now have 30 days from once you are done being an NCAA player to sign with that team. That's pretty cool, right? And I, I think it allows for situations where, you know, what happens if, for instance, Ochai Baji just said, hey, I really want to stay in the draft. I don't know if I'm going to get drafted, but I want to risk it. Well, then he just enters the draft. He doesn't get drafted, and then he gets to go back to school, and then he gets to be drafted again the next year. Or if he does get drafted, what if he gets drafted later than he thought? What if he gets drafted as a late second-round pick? He thought he was going to be an early second-round pick, and he says, you know what? I'll just come back to school, and I can either be drafted in the next season or... Maybe he says, no, I'm fine with being drafted there, but I still want to wanna go compete to win a national championship in college. So I'm going to go compete to win a national championship in college, and then I know once that season's over, I got drafted the year before, those rights still retain, and I get to, once I'm done, just sign with that team. And then, yeah, once you're not drafted twice, you can just sign with anybody. So in theory, you could, after your senior year, if you've not been drafted twice entering the draft— If you had a really good senior season after you weren't on anybody's radars your first three years, then it's just open market. And that's really cool as well. And then obviously there's some compensatory picks for you might be asking, well, that might suck for a team. What happens if they don't sign their first round pick? Well, they get like compensatory picks. So they get like extra basically early second round picks. It's basically like in between the first and second round. I would love this for the NBA. And it would kind of add to the idea of, Well, a lot of these kids are just leaving early, even if they're not ready. Because now they could go back to school, but know that, hey, I have security here. I was already drafted in the first round. I know I'm going to get a guaranteed contract as soon as I leave college. But I want to come back and try to win a title this year. Or I want to come back and do this. Like just having the security would be awesome. And having the ability to enter the draft and not get drafted and then enter the next year too. That would be awesome as well. Because then you have more situations of guys who, I I don't know if like Devon Dotson, for instance, would have actually come back to KU after he was undrafted. You know, maybe he still wanted to, on a two-way contract, you're still making hundreds of thousands of dollars to play basketball. So maybe he still wouldn't do it. But now the NIL is there too. Maybe Devon Dotson gets undrafted and he goes, okay, I'll come back to KU. I'll make a bunch of money with NIL being the face of Kansas basketball. And I can re-enter the draft next year and hope I get drafted, and hope my stock boosts up. I think it would be a huge win for the NBA, and they should do it. I I think they did have a portion of this at one point. I don't know when it changed, but I do remember Like the reason why the Celtics got Larry Bird. You might be thinking, well, what do you mean? How did the Celtics get Larry Bird? They are a team that historically has been one of the best NBA franchises in history. How did they wind up with Larry Bird, or how did the Lakers, another great franchise, wind up with Magic Johnson? I believe... That like In the case of Larry Bird, he was drafted after his freshman or sophomore year, but this rule was around and you could go back to school even after being drafted. And once you were drafted, the team just owned your rights. So Larry Bird went back to school, junior season, leads Indiana State to the national title game where they eventually lose to Magic Johnson. And then he goes pro, but by being drafted a year or two before... The, the team already owned his rights. And it would add to scouting. It would add to the idea of we want to get on these kids early. We want to draft a bunch of freshmen, even if they're not going to come out right away, just in case they blow up into something in a couple of years. It would add another aspect to the draft. They probably don't want to do that from the NBA perspective, just because of the standpoint of it creates even harder work for the guessing process of figuring out who's good and and who's not. But I think from a player empowerment standpoint from a getting more players to make wiser decisions, having some players come back to school, not being worried about the financial obligations. That would be a huge win if the NBA took on what the NHL currently does. Olympics continued on over the weekend. Men's basketball lost to France, snapping a 25-game winning streak. The last loss for Team USA was Argentina in the 2004 Olympics. Honestly, if this was just a bad game or a big upset, You can get over it. It would still be like, wow, what is going on with Team USA basketball? But if this was a one-off, okay, maybe the other team made a bunch of threes or something. This is a trend. That's the issue. They've lost three of four games dating back to the exhibition season. They've lost five of eight games overall in international competition. Yeah, that's right. Team USA is three and five in their last eight games. They are just a bad basketball team right now, which is weird to say with everybody on the roster. 2019 World Cup in China? I didn't even know this. They finished seventh. They went just 2-2 two and two in the exhibitions. Now they're 0-1 at the Olympics. I don't know how this team can be considered the favorite at this point. Like, how does the team with Kevin Durant, Damian Lillard, Zach Levine, Jason Tatum, Devin Booker, Drew Holiday, and company, how do they shoot 36% from the field? Our guys not yelling? Are we not given enough credence to how much familiarity and chemistry matters in basketball? Is the roster just a bad fit of guys in terms of playing or not playing together? Like, do you need more point guards? Do you need more facilitators? Do you need more centers? Is the roster just a a, a bunch of guys who don't fit to the international game? Are the difference in calls from what players are getting in the NBA versus the refs in FIBA? Is that affecting it? Uh, certain guys... If you just play deep in the playoffs or in the finals, are you too tired to be able to perform highly in this? Are we just underrating how good some of those overseas guys are? Are players just severely underperforming? Are they not caring as much than some of these players from their other countries who this is like a huge deal to them? I I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's a combination of different things. Maybe it's different answers for different players. This just seems so impossible to have that loaded of a team. I get it. It's not the... 1992 dream team it's not the redeem team from what was that 2012 with Kobe and LeBron and you have every one of the best players you still have a lot of really good players though talent wise they should be leaps and bounds above everybody else maybe not leaps and bounds but they should win every game next games against Iran they gotta go beat Iran by like 50 points a huge failure by the men's team with this and If they don't win one of their next two games against Iran or Czech Republic, they don't even qualify for the knockout stage. We didn't even qualify for the 3 by 3 either. Absolutely embarrassing. All aboard the women's hype train. Women's basketball is getting it going. Men's basketball, you suck right now. Uh, In other news, our 3 by 3 women's basketball team, absolutely killing it. Kelsey Plum, baller. Other events, swimming has been awesome. Gymnastics, love watching that. Last night was a lot of fun with the swimming. Four by one. U.S. takes home the gold. Katie Ledecky gets the silver. That race was nerve-wracking. Super fun to watch. Little bit of tough go, though, for the U.S. to start. We're we're getting medals. We're near the top. It's, it's us and China right now, one and 2 The losing in basketball. They lost their opener in women's soccer, who were usually killing it there as well, although we have since bounced back from that. Women's gymnastics was only second after the opening qualifying round. Simone Biles... Had kind of a down round by her standards. Let's pick it up. Team America, let's go. Uh, some other news that occurred. Deshaun Watson it was announced he's going to report to Texans camp, but he still wants a trade. That's going to save him from the daily fines of missing training camp. Reportedly, the Texans, this part came out today, want five high picks in the draft form, which includes three first-rounders, Multiple starting caliber players. You're looking at giving up three firsts, a couple seconds, a couple starters as well. It's a lot to give up for a guy who could hypothetically be a franchise quarterback. That high price tag kind of tells me he's not going to get traded. And if there wasn't the the off-the-field stuff with Deshaun Watson, that asking price, it might have gotten met. But the fact that everything has gone on off the field. Like, we don't know, is this guy going to go to jail? Is he going to get suspended from the league? Like, should you even want Deshaun Watson on your team? These are all very real questions because of what has gone on off the field. And I don't know what the hell the Texans do from here. Not just from a trade standpoint, but what do you do in terms of just playing Deshaun Watson? Because on one hand, let's say, I believe the the court case, like, it's not going to be heard until like February or something. It's like after the season. On one hand, we do operate under the notion of innocent until proven guilty. And you kind of have to operate under that. And so you kind of have to start Deshaun Watson and play him. But also, could you imagine how bad of a... and, And I hate this term. That's a bad look because what does it actually mean most of the time? This would be... Pretty monstrously bad. I don't even know if that's a word. It would be a gargantuan, awful moment for the NFL. Imagine if Deshaun Watson leads the Texans to a deep playoff run or a Super Bowl appearance. And then a week later, something comes out in the court case, and now all of a sudden, like he's never gonna play in the NFL again because all this stuff that's come off the field comes to fruition. That would be really bad that he would have started the entire season at that point. So there is no right answer of what to do because either way, you're enabling a situation that off the field warrants probably not playing, but if you just sit him, then you're enabling the idea of, nope, we're not going to go through trial. It's not innocent till proven guilty. It's a lose-lose situation here, and I, I don't know what the hell you do if you're the Houston Texans, which I don't know. I, I almost wonder if you're better off just trading him and saying he's not our problem, but that also has kind of a bad look as well, right? Like you just gave him up to some other team and will another team even match that price given everything going on off the field? Why would you? How could you? You can't. Another guy asking for a trade, Chandler Jones. Um, This one's interesting. Chandler Jones has been one of the best pass rushers in the NFL. If Jones got traded... He'd have one year left on his deal, just this year, and based on the salary and the dead cap and the signing bonus and all those salary cap terms that you imagine in the NFL, a new team would be paying him about $15.5 million. Not doable for the Chiefs, if that's what you're wondering. However, this is why it's interesting for Kansas City. What happened if Frank Clark's legal situation leads to him being unable to play? I believe there's an exempt list. What happens if he gets on that and the Chiefs aren't paying him his money that year? What happens if because of some of the things that have gone off off the field, if the Chiefs cut him or his contract money doesn't totally count due to the off-field issues? Or if Clark is in any way suspended, his guaranteed money could lose that term of guaranteed and be money the Chiefs could work off of, henceforth cutting him and opening up the cash for Chandler Jones. If this all incurs, Frank Clark gets suspended for the the off-the-field stuff with the gun, and in his contract, it is able to void the guaranteed money, you could open up as much as $18 million by cutting him at that point, even despite the dead money that you take on, which combined with your current cap situation, which you have a little under $8 million right now, you would have enough room to make a trade for Chandler Jones. So meaning at that point, given Clark getting suspended or having legal punishments, you'd be both looking for a replacement pass rusher to replace Frank Clark, and you would have the money to open up for the trade. I have no idea what it would cost for Chandler Jones. Again, he's an elite player at a position of elite importance. He's also in the final year of a trade, and he's request or of a deal in requesting a trade. So to make this clear, if you're making this trade and you're Kansas City, it's probably only for a rental. Given that he's only under contract for one more year, given how tied up you are in cap for this year, for next year, he might only be part of your 2021 roster. That is unless you want to get into the conversation of cutting a bunch of guys, not bringing back Tyron Matthew, and a couple others. If you want to win a Super Bowl, though, with the caveat that a Clark situation leads to him not playing and not counting toward the cap, that's the only if here. If that doesn't happen, you don't have a chance to afford Chandler Jones. But if that situation does happen with Frank Clark, I say why not? Give it a shot. Give up a second-round pick for another good shot. And I don't even know if that's enough. But give up a second-round pick for another good shot at a title, and you have a couple C. Jones kind of dominating on the D-line. FM 1017, 1320, KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Coming up, we're going to preview Iowa State KU football's fifth opponent, first opponent in the month of October. I'm Derek Johnson. This is RCST. Welcome back in, Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson here. Michael Swain joins us now, formerly from Lawrence, a KU grad. He now covers Iowa State for their site on 24-7 Sports. We've been doing all our football previews. Last week kind of got derailed with my to be, but now we do get back onto this with Iowa State, the next opponent for KU. We previewed the three non-con teams. We previewed Baylor. Iowa State, the opponent after that, and the Cyclones are absolutely loaded headed into the season. They bring back a majority of the starters on both sides of the football. Michael, what's kind of the buzz around Iowa State right now? Is is there legit talk about a possible college football playoff appearance?
2: Yeah, it's so interesting with Iowa State because on the outside, there is a lot of buzz of talking about Iowa State being a potential college football playoff contender, but You know, inside the program, I don't think that's really what they're focused on. I think that was one of the big things that at Big 12 Media Days that I took away was that they're not really focused on that. And that's kind of been the hallmark of the Matt Campbell program at Iowa State is that it's very much focused on one day at a time, regimented, how can I get better today? And it seems like they've really taken that on to where it's all about the process. It's not really getting caught up in, we need to do this to get to the college football playoff. It's, hey, if we treat every week like, you know, we need to win this week, they can make it to the college football playoff, win the Big 12 title game. You know, they made it there last year, of course, but fell a little short due to some turnovers. But I think it's some one of those things where inside the program, the expectations, I think they do have um, big expectations for themselves, but it's not something they're going to vocalize, I think, in the public.
0: As far as, as what gets the team over the hump from being a team that almost won the Big 12 title they were so close to beating Oklahoma after they already beat them in the regular season from getting from where they were last year which was a great season winning the Fiesta Bowl to winning that Big 12 conference to being a college football playoff contender what's kind of the talk about what they need to take that next step
2: yeah I think it really is a lot about Brock Purdy because you know obviously Iowa State is Brees Hall who is Going to be a Heisman contender again this fall, probably someone that's going to be a challenging for the Doke Walker Award as the best running back in college football. He's someone that really kind of raises the floor for Iowa State because, you know, if you think about Iowa State the last few years, it's been really good defense offense is good at times, but can also be a little turnover prone at times. So you have Brees Hall. So, you know, you're going to be able to run the ball, you know, a good amount of the time. And I think it's going to really kind of rely on what Brock Purdy does, because I think you saw it last year at times where early on in the year, Brock Purdy wasn't at his best and Iowa state lost to Louisiana. Um, They were able to beat Oklahoma, but Brock Purdy, I didn't he didn't have his best game in that win, but, you look at later on in the season when Iowa State really started smacking teams, it was because Brock Purdy went on this stretch where he averaged like 10 yards a completion, um, or 10 yards an attempt, I should say, on like 75% completion. He was on fire to end the year, and Iowa State looked like a juggernaut to end the season. And then you look at the Big 12 title game, for example, and Iowa State comes up short, and Brock Purdy has multiple turnovers. Um, and so if you can imagine what, Iowa State could maybe do if Brock Purdy doesn't have, I believe it was three turnovers in the Big Twelve title game. So I think a lot of it's gonna rely on, you know, what Brock Purdy is like because he's someone that if he plays like he did at the back end of last season, he's someone that can really raise the ceiling of Iowa State's offense to where they really can be a one of those top four, top five programs in the country.
0: What has gone wrong for the team at the very beginning of the season? Last year you lose to Louisiana, who they ended up being a really good team year before almost losing to Northern Iowa and then I believe losing to Iowa in the non-conference portion of the season is is there just something that takes this team a little bit of time to get rolling into the year
2: yeah, it's interesting because that was kind of a topic of conversation this off season. Was how can Iowa State, if they have these big kind of goals on maybe from the outside, you know, looking at the, the schedule, right? You play you and I at home, then you go and play Iowa, and Matt Campbell has not beaten Iowa yet during his tenure at Iowa State. So I think that if you look on each year, though, the Iowa State staff will tell you that it's different things each season, right? Last year they lost to Louisiana, didn't look great against TCU. Well, they had some issues with. COVID during fall camp where they missed a bunch of guys and a lot of guys were missing time and they were dinged up and the unprecedented offseason I think really took a toll on them early in the year. Now years before that I think there were maybe different issues where you know I think that you know of course special teams didn't help against Iowa two years ago um, but I think it's just a different thing each season I think for Iowa State this year it's going to be really leaning into the run game I think early on in the season obviously you return the entire offensive line you have one of the best running backs in college football. And you have one of the best defensive coordinators and most experienced defenses in the conference as well. So I think it's going to be about kind of leaning into those strengths and then letting Brock Purdy find the rhythm as the season progresses.
0: Well, and I guess the flip side to that too has just been October. I don't know if it's, is it Brocktober at this point with Brock Purdy going on? That's unfortunately for Kansas when the game is going to take place because Iowa state has been electric in the month of October and that game will take place on October 2nd. Now, It's not like Kansas was going to come into the game right now looking at it. I mean, probably be, I don't know, 30-point underdogs or something like that. But just to kind of add injury and insult there, the game is in October specifically. Is there something like magic about that month for this team? I mean, why have they been so good then? Is it just kind of happenstance?
2: I think it's one of those things where they've been really able to kind of strike the rhythm in October because we just talked about how they've maybe struggled in the month of September um, in the Matt Campbell era. And I think that for them it's been you you struggle early on, but then you really do start to find their groove. And I think you'd even argue that I think early on in Matt Campbell's era uh, at Iowa State that they kind of faded as seasons went on where it wasn't really – they didn't hit the ground running early in the season but played really well in late September, early October. But then by the time late November came around, they started to fade. And so it's been a little bit different. I think last year was maybe more of what you'd expect where the slow start to the season, but they really picked things up through October into November. And then, of course, in the Big 12 title game. Um, But for the Kansas game itself, I think, you know, obviously... That'll be in Ames, which I think every game day in Ames this year is going to be rocking just because obviously the fans weren't there in full capacity last season. But I think just for Iowa State, it's just been about them kind of finding the rhythm in October and it allows, you know, of course, like you mentioned, October. I think he's had some of his best games in the month of October.
0: On offense, you mentioned Purdy, you mentioned Brees Hall coming back at running back. I know coming into 2020, offensive line was kind of a question, but it seems like they answered those questions. So what is the offensive line and some of those other pieces on the outside, like a Charlie Kohler and the receiving core, Xavier Hutchinson, what do those look like for Iowa State here in 2021?
2: Yeah, so the offensive line is a fascinating kind of battle going into the fall because Iowa State starting left guard, Trevor Downing, um, he was considered one of the top offensive linemen in the program. He went down with an injury in the first half against Louisiana in the first game of last year. Ended up missing the entire season. It forced some reshuffling along the offensive line to where a a younger guy, Daryl Simmons, came in and really flashed at times. Maybe wasn't the most consistent player for Iowa State. And then the right tackle position wasn't necessarily most consistent either. Joey Ramos started the season there, but he suffered an injury. Then a, a redshirt freshman, Jake Remsburg, came in, played really well. But then he suffered his own injury in the Big 12 title game to where then Joey Ramos had to come in in that game and then the Fiesta Bowl. So going into this fall, you have kind of seven guys that have started multiple games throughout their Iowa State careers. So they've got a kind of a decision to make to see kind of who are the best five that can roll kind of on a week to week basis, because it's a good thing to have is depth issues, right? Where you got so many bodies that can fill those offensive line positions, which is a new problem for Iowa state, which is just a good one to have. And on the outside, I think obviously Tariq Milton is going to be someone that all of my eye on, he had a kind of an injury riddled season last year. He played only a handful of games. It didn't really look like himself towards the back end of the season. This is someone that, it's just an explosive downfield threat. And we talked about kind of the what would raise the ceiling of Iowa State. I think if they can find a downfield threat like Tariq Milton, if he can be there consistently week in and week out, I think that only adds another facet to the offense because of course you mentioned Charlie Kohler, we've got Brees Hall, you know, so they've got plenty of guys that can kind of do damage, you know, kind of in ten to twenty yards, but once you get past that 25-yard mark, it's really Milman is going to be the guy. And if he can stretch the defenses, I think that's something that could help kind of open up the game for Brees Hall and Charlie Kohler, too.
0: We're talking with Michael Swain here on Rock Shock Sports Talk, previewing Iowa State and the Cyclones taking on the Jayhawks at the beginning of October. On the defensive side of the ball, I believe nine starters back for Iowa State. Mike Rose in the middle, one of the best linebackers in the country. Uh, Greg Eisworth, one of the best safeties in the country. What makes this defense so good, and, and how unique are they compared to some of the other teams in the Big 12 and across the country with what they like to do?
2: Of course, yeah. I think that a lot of credit goes to John Haycock, the defensive coordinator. Of course, Iowa State kind of reinvented their defense a few years back where they went to a 3-3-5 kind of stack where you know you don't see a – it's a lot of like three-man front with four linebackers, four-man front with three linebackers. But what they do is a three-man front – with their three linebackers, and they have three safeties. And I think that the three-safety look is what makes Iowa State more of a unique defense. Um, And I think that what makes them so good and what made them so good last year was, I think we're at the point now where – there's so much experience and they are so used to playing in this scheme together where these are guys now that they've recruited specifically for this scheme and for these specific roles to where they're the right fits for what John Haycock wants to do and what those position coaches want to do with their individual position groups so I think it really has allowed you know Iowa State to adjust on the fly and not be concerned that guys are going to miss assignments I think you see that in the way Iowa State defends in the second half I think that they can be a little bit bend but don't break in the first half of games. But then you look in the second half of games last year, I mean, they were so dominant. You know, the Big 12 title game is a great example. I think they only allowed one score in the second half of that game, if I remember correctly. So I think it's one of those things where they've got a really good mix of kind of a really smart defensive coordinator, but also some really veteran players that know what the defensive coordinator wants to do as well.
0: Last year, Kansas lost to Iowa State 52-22, to but – It was 38-22 to with seven minutes left in that game year before up in Ames. KU uh, kind of went back and forth with Iowa State um, in that game and kind of a high-scoring game there. It was uh, a game that kind of went back and forth a little bit at the end of the game, but Iowa State pulled it out in the end. Uh, Is there anything that sticks out to you about this series of late or about how the game went a season ago between these two?
2: I just think the games are never boring. Um, I think if last year is a good example of that, where I think it felt like early on in the game that Iowa State was maybe going to kind of run away with things. But, you know, like a kick return from Kenny Logan, um, I think really kind of flipped the game on its head to make it a closer game than it maybe felt at the stadium. Um, And I think the year before that, you know, that was obviously the Carter Stanley year where, you know, you really didn't know which KU team was going to show up, if they were going to be the high-flying offense or kind of the ground-and-pound offense at times that you saw with Les Miles. So I think that one thing we've learned from, I think, the Iowa State KU games, at least recently, is that they're just not going to be boring. I think that the drama always happens. There's always things going on that makes them kind of interesting contests.
0: He is Michael Swain. You can check out all his work for Iowa State on their 24 7 sports site, it's called Cyclone Alert, helping us preview the Cyclones here today. Michael, thank you so much for the time and uh, looking forward to talking to you down the road in a KU Iowa State Big Ten championship game in Indianapolis.
2: <laughs> I love it. Thanks for having me on, Derek. Good to be back.
0: All right, that's Michael Swain of the 24-7 sports for Iowa State. Again, if uh, I guess you're listening to this and you know somebody who's a Cyclone fan or you are, Cyclone Alert is the name of the site. Michael always does great work. He used to work for Fog.net with Scott Jason and got his own work working for Iowa State. So, enjoyed catching up with Michael. And that's the thing with his Iowa State game. With the non-conference games, you can convince yourself that KU could win or be in it late. Even the Coastal Carolina one, even though... Coastal Carolina will probably be a double-digit favorite in that game. KU was kind of in the game late last time against Coastal Carolina. You could convince yourself they're in that game. I think they could beat Duke. They should beat South Dakota. The Baylor game, kind of the same way as Coastal Carolina. They'll probably be double-digit underdogs, but it's a game that you could foresee yourself being down 24-17 to at the start of the fourth quarter, something like that. The Iowa State game, probably not that way, just because of the fact that you're going to be, I don't know, 20, 30-point underdogs. Iowa State, if everything goes to plan, is going to be a team who's a top-10 team all season long and maybe is a dark horse for the college football playoff. So you don't really expect that game to go super well, but Kansas has played them close of late. 41-31 was the score back in Ames last time they played there, and I think Iowa State hit a field goal with a few minutes left in the game to expand it to a two-possession lead to kind of put the nail in the coffin on KU, but it was an exciting game for KU scoring points. Last year, as mentioned, it wasn't a super close game, but KU did make it a little closer than you might have thought it was going to be. It was seven minutes left in the game, only down by two scores. So this has been a series that KU has maybe made a little bit more interesting than you'd think it would over the last couple years. But I think more so learning about Iowa State is more so learning about not necessarily the path of how it can be done or that's the only way for it to get done, but it just gives you hope as a KU fan or really as a a fan of any smaller college football team, your non blue blood, so to speak of that, it can be done that when you put the pieces together, when you find the right diamonds in the rough, when you coach them up the right way, when you have a good scheme, when you're unique with how you do it. And when you have that special year where all that coincides with bringing back a lot of talent and having the experience, special things can happen. And that's what happened for Iowa state last year. That's what happens possibly this year for Iowa State as well. And I think it just gives you hope as a Kansas fan that maybe under Lance Leipold, you'll find that same kind of ignited spark that Matt Campbell has found with Iowa State. FM 1017, 1320 KLWNs, Rock Chalk Sports Talk.